So you'll see the opening line of there's a Public Health England document in 2015, and the opening line is, we're eating too much sugar and it's bad for our health, mm. right? So it seems like it's everybody's problem. But actually what happens when you do that is that you ignore social inequality. Mm-hmm. And so the core argument of the book is that actually by focusing on a single nutrient like sugar as the cause of multiple problems, you actually make inequalities worse rather than better. Can I have another snack? Hey everyone, happy new year and welcome back to the Can I Have Another Snack podcast where we talk about food, bodies and identity, especially through the lens of parenting. I'm Laura Thomas, I'm an anti-diet registered nutritionist and I also write the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter. I am really, really excited to share this week's conversation. It is the perfect anecdote to the January diet culture hellscape clusterfuck that we're all living through. My guest today is gender studies professor and author Dr. Karen Throsby, whose book Sugar Rush was an absolute highlight for me in 2023. I have recommended it as a snack on other podcast episodes, and I have just been pushing it on anyone and everyone who will listen to me. Karen's thesis in the book is essentially how the public health and popular science discourse around sugar obscures the social and structural inequality responsible for health disparities. And by doing so, it actively embeds these social and structural inequalities further into the fabric of society. It's an amazing book. I cannot recommend it highly enough. But I've also split this conversation into two parts. So you'll get the second half of it in two weeks time. But today in part one, we're talking about how the conversation around sugar being bad for you in inverted commas is framed with so much certainty. Whereas if we actually look closely at the science, it holds a lot more doubt and ambiguity. We'll also talk about how nostalgic fantasies of a past where nobody apparently ate any sugar and everyone climbed trees all day long erases the unpaid labor of women and how even modern day efforts to eliminate sugar are dependent on unequal distribution of household labor and are also sort of framed as not as work but as something that is pleasurable a sort of labor of love and if women don't love doing that work they get scapegoated as bad mothers there's so much great stuff in this episode and like I said I'll share part two of it soon where we get into the rhetoric around ultra-processed food, how the so-called war on obesity fails to live up to its own aims, and loads more. So stay tuned for part two in a couple of weeks. But before we get to today's episode, just a quick reminder that the entire CHAS universe is reader and listener supported, meaning I literally cannot do this work without your support. If you like what we do here and want to help keep the lights on, then you can upgrade your account to become a paying subscriber. It's £5 a month or £50 for the year. And not only do you support the time and labour that goes into producing this newsletter and podcast, but you get access to our weekly community discussion thread, Snacky Bits. You can comment on posts and engage with other readers. And you get access to my monthly Dear Laura column and the full archive. 
You'll also see a bit more bonus content on free essays that's just for paid subscribers in the coming months. So make sure you're signed up to get in on that action. Head to laurathomas.substack.com or check out the show notes for that link. All right, team, here's part one of my conversation with Dr. Karen Throsby. Karen, I'd love if you could begin by sharing a bit about you and the work that you do. Yes, thank you. So I'm um, a sociologist. I'm a professor of gender studies at the School of Sociology and Social Policy at the University of Leeds. And throughout my 20 plus years of career, I've been looking at issues of gender, bodies, technology and health. So I've done work on reproductive technology, on surgical weight management. I've done work on endurance sport and what you do to a body when you engage in endurance sport socially. What does that mean? And then most recently, I've been working on what I've been calling the social life of sugar. How can we think about sugar in a moment when sugar is being attacked as a kind of health demon? The constant in my career has been this idea about bodies and how we try and change bodies or how bodies change. And and then most recently in relation to food and particularly sugar. Mm. Tell us a little bit more about that because, you know, you kind of say this almost quite flippantly, oh yeah, I did been doing sugar, but that's like a, a whole like undertaking in terms of research and then the book that came out of that. So could you maybe tell us a little bit about the research that you did that went into you know, studying the social life of sugar and and maybe a little bit about the, the process of writing the book as well. Yes, of course. So it started from observation, which is where a lot of research comes from, of noticing just a lot of sugar talk in mm. the media, for example. And so I decided to look at it more formally. So I actually did a, a started with newspapers and I looked at newspaper coverage from 2000 to I ended up looking to 2020 and I searched for newspaper articles in nine UK newspapers, so across the political spectrum, mm. um, broadsheet, tabloid as well, looking for articles of quite substantive articles, like sort of a, a 500 words or more with the word sugar in the title. Mm. And then I filtered those so that I took out all of the irrelevant things. So there's lots of mentions of Alan sugar, uh, for mm. example, <laughs> uh, lots of uh, sugar metaphors, like a spoonful of sugar that you get in um, business reporting. And I took all those out and then I kind of looked at the pattern and what you see from 2000 to about 2012, it's very, a very low level of coverage, Mm. just trickling along very low. And then in 2013, it starts to shoot up. And then by 2016, it's really high and it peaks there and then it drops off a little bit, peaks up again at 2018 Mm -hmm. and then slowly falls away. And so I took 2013 through to towards the end of 2020 as the period of study. And that ended up with about 550 newspaper articles that then became my objective analysis. So what's happening with sugar? And then I look, I dug out anything else I could find. So policy documents and newspaper medical articles, self-help books, popular science tracks, anything I could find about sugar. And that became the body of data that I then was analyzing just to say, what is, how is sugar being talked about? Who is being excluded when we talk about sugar? Trying to see it not literally, Mm -hmm. but thinking about what is sugar doing Mm -hmm. socially Mm -hmm. when we talk about it. Yeah, it's, it's an, I'm just thinking of this from a research perspective. It's a huge undertaking. I'm just imagining you going through your in vivo notes, just like. (laughs) Exactly. You're right there. I mean, it was a, 
it, it was a an unusual project for me because all my other projects have been broadly ethnographic. So I've mm-hmm. actually gone and observed groups, mm-hmm. a social social organization, and mm-hmm. so on, um, or done interviews and things like mm-hmm. that. So this was a, a departure for me that it's very text based. Mm-hmm. It's looking at how it's reproduced and represented in text, in different kinds of text. But you ask the same questions. What is a newspaper trying to achieve in writing in this particular way? What is a popular science tract trying to achieve in writing about sugar in a particular way? And then you can start thinking about, so what does sugar mean in different contexts, but also what kind of work does sugar enable us to do socially? Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit more about the sort of, maybe just like the headline conclusions that that you drew out of this and then and we can kind of get into some of the more specifics in a second? Yeah, I mean, the, the bottom line for me was that sugar and what I'm calling the attack on sugar, this targeting that happens quite suddenly around this time and taking over from fat in that sense as being mm. the enemy, that this talk around sugar appears to be in relation to everyone. It's seen as a a problem, a problem that we all have. So you'll see the opening line of there's a Public Health England document in 2015. And the opening line is we're eating too much sugar and it's bad for our health. Mm. Right. So it seems like it's everybody's problem. Mm. But actually what happens when you do that is that you ignore social inequality. Mm. And so the core argument of the book is that actually by focusing on a single nutrient like sugar, as the cause of multiple problems, you actually make inequalities worse rather than better because it actually relies on erasing inequality from the start to say we eat too much sugar. So a sociologist would always want to ask, well, who is we here? Mm -hmm. And in fact, what we see by looking at the newspaper coverage and so on, those who are deemed to be eating too much sugar are also those who are already the most marginalized in society. So it provides cover for actually an intensification of attacks on marginalized groups in society. And and I argue in the book that that rise that happens in 2012, 2013, is actually related to the implementation of austerity measures in the UK, which is the the retrenchment of the cutting welfare and Mm -hmm. so on and targeting particular groups as somehow as over consumers of public resources. And therefore, they're easily translated as over consumers in other ways. Mm -hmm. And so that this figure of the kind of poor, fat, irresponsible individual as a caricature comes up as kind of someone who can be blamed and targeted so Mm -hmm. the argument in the book is really that by focusing on a single nutrient you not only ignore those groups but you actually compound the inequalities that they're already experiencing yeah you're furthering the marginalization and the stigmatization of those groups there are a few things within what you've just said there that I wanted to kind of come back and and revisit if it's okay and the first is this idea of certainty you know you say at the beginning of those public health england documents and i think throughout the headlines and and the media reporting and some of the documentaries that you discuss there's this thread of certainty certainty that sugar is bad for us certainty that sugar makes us fat certainty that fat is even a bad thing in the first place can you talk to us a bit more about how certainty is used in this way as a sort of political device to drive discourse in a specific direction. 
Yeah, that's a re- it's a really good question. And what we can see with these certain claims, I mean, that sugar is bad for you. That's the mm. that's the the core claim of that. It's bad for us. But actually, when you look at the arguments against sugar, there isn't very much agreement over what kind of problem it is in the first place. Mm. There's two core ways that this plays out. The first is that it's bad for you because it makes you fat, because it's it's empty calories. It's more calories than you need. So that's why it's bad for you. It could be anything, but it just happens to be something that is very calorie dense without bringing other nutritional benefit. The other version of the problem of sugar is that it is actively toxic. Mm-hmm. So yeah, not just that's... a sort of source of calories as much as any other, but that it's actively disrupting, it's creating a metabolic dysfunction and disruption that it creates this chaos around your management of blood sugar Mm -hmm. and brain chemistry and everything Mm -hmm. and they seem to be in opposition to each other but in fact have managed to coalesce around the certainty that sugar is bad almost as if it doesn't really matter why it's bad but it just is and it's created a kind of lowest common denominator platform that brings everyone together and it's so it's provided a space where multiple vested interests can meet. So politicians, for example, have a, a vested interest in this kind of narrative because it provides targets of blame. It provides a site where you can appear to be doing something about a problem. Mm-hmm. And people who are writing books saying that it's toxic are invested in that because they have a kind of a brand that is then yeah. Uh, created and then there's a whole diet industry that is invested in the idea of empty calories and you know and and so on and so I'm not suggesting it's a terrible plot right but I'm just saying it provides an opportunity for multiple interests to come together Mm -hmm. and I think there's a number of ways this is facilitated so for example around the idea that obesity is a disaster Mm -hmm. is an awful thing that obesity Mm -hmm. is terrible around the idea that sugar is addictive yeah which is a very common thing that's used. Again, what constitutes addiction is extremely vague. And then there's a nostalgia that comes, mm-hmm. right? We didn't used to eat like this. Sort of in the, the, the 1950s, post-war rationing, although we didn't eat like this, we all just ran around all day and we never ate sugar and we were all fit and healthy. And so those things kind of tie these together to create the certainty that sugar is bad. Yeah. And that we eat too much of it and it's bad for our health. And so certainty for me, this certainty is manufactured mm-hmm. and it is providing political cover mm-hmm. for doubt, which actually, when you look at the science, science is always much more riddled with doubt and uncertainty than the claims that are made for it. Absolutely. Um, and often that doubt is in the journal articles and so on. The, yeah. But then it gets sort of extracted as a certainty. And so we get this this sense of certainty that creates an imperative to act. Mm, A sense of urgency. Fatness, for example, and sugar by sort of as its proxy is framed as a problem about which something must be done. Mm -hmm. And so in a sense, then the the need is to be seen to act. Mm -hmm. And so you could have an intervention, say, like the sugar tax, um, which I would argue is much more about being seen to do something than actually achieving its stated goal. And so I think what this sense of certainty does is it provides cover 
And it also erases the inconvenient uncertainties around who, around why do some people eat in particular ways? What are the social reasons? What are the inequalities that the other factors that determine how people choose to eat? And I think those get erased by that certainty. So it's very functional in that way. Mm -hmm. Everything just gets flattened down and collapsed in this, yeah really problematic way I mean there's there was so much that we could kind of get into what you just said there but I suppose one section of the book I mean I enjoyed all of your book but I really enjoyed the section where you talked about nostalgia as well that you Mm -hmm. just mentioned there and this kind of like going back to a time where we didn't have much sugar in our diet and we you know we had all these home cooked meals everything was you know freshly pulled from the ground and we could just climb trees all day and I'm like well, first of all what kind of utopia were these men living in anyway but secondly i think the part that i really appreciated there was how you talked about the erasure of women's labor in making that a reality in the first place. Do you want to just say a, a little yeah. bit about that? Because I, I want to come back to gender in a, in a bigger, more expansive sense in a second, but I would just be interested yeah. while we're there. In that particular context, you know, there is this vision that it's never it's never located strictly in time, but it clearly speaks to some kind of post-war, sort of immediate post-war imagination, fantasy, really, that rests, if if we were to accept that this vision is true, that everyone was running around, burning off calories, never snacking, coming home to splendid, home-cooked, homegrown meals. Mm-hmm. What isn't discussed, of course, is of who cooked these meals. How does this food appear? You know, this, this handcrafted food. And of course, that is the completely unrecognized and largely unpaid labor of women, mm-hmm. that a lot of these fantasies around the sugar-free life are built on this idea that food just somehow happens, that what's often referred to as real food, it just sort of happens. And then the labor of women is completely written out, which of course then leaves standing that expectation that women should do that work Mm -hmm. because it doesn't even count as work because it's Mm -hmm. just kind of what's done. I mean, interestingly, (laughs) the other The other dimension to the nostalgia is a much longer view, which is this idea of a kind of paleolithic past Mm -hmm. that, again, is never located strictly in time, but definitely pre-agricultural revolution, where we were hunter-gatherers and basically it was based on times of plenty. So you would only eat fruit when the, the berries came out and that would be it. But of course, again, what gets written out here is there's a great focus on hunting and on meat consumption. But actually, it erases the work of women who would have been doing the gathering and the preparing of food. And there's there's some interesting archaeological research that points out that actually we find bones from hunting and tools that were used mm-hmm. to hunt. But a lot of the preparation of vegetables and fruit and so on leaves no trace. And so the, yeah. the work of women is literally erased in these stories yeah. Yeah. And, and it just disappears. And presumably as well, there's a lot of embodied wisdom that gets kind of passed through generations to know like which berries are safe to eat. And there's another layer to it. It feels like there that that's also being erased. Yes. Who are the bearers of knowledge, who teaches the next generation and so on that, that yeah. is lost in these celebrations of hunting cultures, just as much as it's lost in this this kind of post-war fantasy. 
Yeah. Well, actually, since since we're here, let's maybe let's stay on the topic of of gender and and mm. labor because I think it it has implications, right, for the conversations that we're having in this moment around whether it's eliminating sugar from the diet or ultra processed foods from the diet or whatever it is that I think a lot of that rests on women's unpaid labor to make that come to fruition. Yeah, again, that's something that I think is completely left out of this conversation on generally in, in nutrition, it's it's left out of the conversation in terms of who's actually doing this work. And I wrote a series about ultra processed foods a little while ago. And that was my central question is like, who's growing grains and soaking beans and, uh, <laughs> you know, like planning menus and doing the shopping and, you know, even things like who is making sure that this fresh food is being eaten before it gets spoiled. And, you know, that there is a lot of labor there that just kind of gets kind of glossed over. And so I, I wondered if you, you could tell us some of your your thoughts on the work of eradicating sugar and how that's gendered and specifically how mothers shoulder that additional reproductive labor. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really important point. And I think, so there's, there's a genre of newspaper story that I called the mortified mother story. I love this. <laughs> which is when the mother, it's always the mother, and it is always households with children, sort of oh, heterosexual households yeah. with children. And what, what the woman does is she records all the food that the family members eat. Sometimes it's just the children. Sometimes it's the whole family, including mm-hmm. the male partner. She records everything that they eat. And then the sugar is calculated. And then a nutritionist or some kind of sort of dietary expert will come in and basically correct her mm-hmm. and sort of tell her where she's going wrong. And, and it's always a kind of shock story. I had no idea we were, I was giving them so much sugar. Yeah. Um, often, you know, I thought this was a I thought cereal bars were really healthy, but actually they're loaded with sugar. And so those kind of revelations. And then she has a kind of confessional moment where she sort of says, oh, I, you know, I, I, this is terrible. I've done all of these things wrong. And now I'm going to do, I'm going right to thing. calculate everything online. I'm going to cook their breakfast from scratch. I'm going to do this, that, and the other. Mm. And what's really striking about these stories, well, first of all, it's always women, the very kind of deliberate harnessing of guilt and shame mm-hmm. that's cultivated. Yeah. I haven't seen a single story of this kind or in any of the self-help books that I looked at or any source that I looked at where a redistribution of household labor was part of the recommendations, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> so it's never there. It's it's about her doing it. But what's clever about it in a way is that it's done in such a way as to make it not work. It's not a kind of work because it's seen as pleasure, as leisure. Mm-hmm. So she she is being a mother. And therefore, you know, she it's meant to be she's gaining pleasure from acquiring these new skills, from being a better mother and so on, learning these new cooking techniques and things. And so it ends up being not coded as work, which is, uh, you know, like the perfect patriarchal fantasy that <laughs> women do it because they love it so much. And so it's never even, oh, dear, I'm really sorry you have to do all this extra work. It's lucky you Mm -hmm. like having to get even more pleasure from from cooking. And and, but it's not just cooking. This is the thing that you, you alluded to as well. It's the planning. It's the shopping. It's the knowing, the remembering. And often in the case of men, actually, one of the responsibilities of women is actually to change their tastes, if you like without them noticing. So they're not inconvenienced by it. They don't even have to be on board. 
so they, they kind of sneak lower sugar things in so that it won't be noticed so that they never have to actually engage with the process but it still gets done and so the the guilt and shame and responsibility of this also then makes it impossible to refuse it or hard to refuse it in the sense of you know if a good mother does this yeah what does it mean for someone who doesn't can't do it for whatever reason and of course all of these things that are recommended um, in terms of sugar reduction are really oriented towards a middle class set of tastes and dispositions they assume that you have the money to keep a stocked store cupboard of what can often be quite expensive items that you have a fridge and freezer you can afford to run that you have a stove that you can run Mm -hmm. that you you know that you can have on and all of these things that you have the time you Mm -hmm. that you're not working three jobs for very little money that you have the time to cook and prepare and soak the beans and and do all these things And so the gendering of it then also ties to a whole set of classed expectations about what a good mother is. I think it's really interesting in the context of sort of, I don't know, third wave feminism and all the rhetoric around how, you know, women are liberated in so many different ways and and all the, everything that you're talking about, it sort of, I guess, covers up the the sort of the double burden of work that women now face inside and outside of the home and how women particularly mothers are still scapegoated for a lot of society's problems which you know we could debate whether or not obesity is a, mm-hmm. a problem in the first place and sugar consumption is is a is a problem in the first place but i'm just thinking about how much we still blame Mothers, you know, there was um a whole sort of theory of well, there's there's many different mother blame theories, isn't there? Sort of refrigerator mums causing mm-hmm. autism, the yeah. you know, the sort of sexist and fat phobic and racist sort of narrative around black mothers causing high levels of of yes. um unemployment in black in black men. There's the um the mother blame for you know uh, anorexia that was that was a big one and then mm-hmm. sort of in the mid century we see obesity start to become blamed on mothers which was kind of it seems like a a reaction to undernutrition being the issue then moving to so called overnutrition so it's it it feels like on one hand it's something that's very like confined to history like it like it's something in the past but it's actually still going on. It's it's alive and well. There's academic papers being mm-hmm. published by reputable institutions. Like there was a paper I found from 2019 that blamed working mothers for higher weight children. There was another one from just last year. So in 2022 saying that children's weight was dependent not on how much ultra processed food they ate, but on how much ultra processed foods their mothers ate. So then indicating this sort of butterfly effect, right? Mm-hmm. That the smallest yeah. flap of a wing mm-hmm. <laughs> can cause, you know, ca- catastrophe again in inverted commas for your, for your child. So that was just a bit of a download of my brain. I'm, I'm curious to hear what it kind of like yeah provoked for you I mean I think I think those are really good points I mean for me this kind of raises what we could think of as a dilemma of the the dilemma of femininity in itself that you can never get it right 
right? Mm-hmm. You either too focused on your body or not in, not focused yeah. enough on your body. You know that there's there's always that fine line that women have to walk in mm-hmm. so many ways, and I think this comes out in the food. So one of the things I was looking for when I was looking at these stories, the the yeah. the um these the mortified sort of mothers, shocks, the mortified mother yeah. stories, was to find one. See if I could find one where the mother was doing okay. Oh, right? yes. And yeah. I found I found one where actually the 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 expert uh, couldn't really find anything wrong with the they ate lots of fresh fruit and vegetables, a lot of lot of home cooking. Um, you know, they had this this what would count as a as a healthy diet in normative yeah. terms. But then there's just this moment at the end where they say, aha, but and because she had a daughter, the nutritionist said, but you don't want her to become obsessed. You don't want the daughter to become upset because she'll get an eating disorder. So you need to relax and not be over strict on sugar. You've got to give them treats sometimes. Otherwise, she'll go down this, this very dangerous path. So, again, you can control sugar for, for others, but not too much because you don't want to become obsessed and risk eating disorders. And so she literally can't ever. And so her confession is, yeah, you're right. I have been a bit strict. I'll, I'll make sure we have some treats. And so you, you, there's really no, no winning. I think the other thing that I thought about as you were talking was the fact that women themselves are seen as hyper vulnerable to sugar. Yeah. They themselves are seen as having no control over sugar and a bit like children, actually, they're seen as being kind of incontinent in the face of sugar. And I found quite a few studies that aimed to show how women just had no kind of, couldn't do anything in the face of in the face of sugar and there's um uh, david gillespie who writes about giving up sugar yeah he he writes about this and kind of says you know you need to go cold turkey you've got to you know just get it out of your system and that men for men this can happen quite quickly but for women it can take several months and then doesn't really explain it it's sort of there's a mention about hormones because that's you know where where, you know that's like the go-to for everything but there's no real explanation and so there is this idea of women as needing to exercise control over the family's diet, but also of being quite dangerous in the sense that they're they're seen as always perpetually out of control as well, and so kind of not to be trusted in that. And the witches, Karen. Exactly. (laughs) And so it's another dimension of the not being able to win, like Mm -hmm. for women in the field of diet and body, body management it's very hard to find a position where women could be said to be kind of safe. Absolutely. I have kind of, you know, conversations with friends about this push and pull that we experience, particularly as mothers, but women broadly. And, you know, the thing that I always say to my friend is like, the game is rigged, right? We cannot win. We can't win at all. So we have to figure out something that 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 feels authentic to our yeah. values. And we have another snack. All right, team, this is where we're leaving off for part one of my conversation with Karen. I'll share part two in two weeks' time, where we're talking about the sugar tax that we have here in the UK, how the so-called war on obesity has to constantly renew itself like Madonna to make make itself relevant and how ultra processed foods are becoming the new sugar. Plus Karen and I share our snacks. So make sure that you're subscribed either on Substack at laurathomas.substack.com or on your podcast player. 
And if you want to support the show further and get full access to the Can I Have Another Snack universe, you can become a paid subscriber. It's just £5 a month or £50 for the year. And as well as tons of cool perks, you make this work sustainable and we couldn't do it without the support of paying subscribers. Head to laurathomas.substack.com to learn more and sign up today. Can I Have Another Snack is hosted by me, Laura Thomas. Our sound engineer is Lucy Dearlove. Fiona Bray formats and schedules all of our posts and makes sure they're on time every week. And our funky artwork is by Caitlin Pracer and the music is by Jason Barkhouse. Thanks for listening. Can I have another snack? <laughs>